Hi folks, Greg Schill here, co-host of Densely Speaking. Today we are bringing you some crossover content that we thought you might enjoy. I recently teamed up with the Iowa Law Review to host an interdisciplinary academic symposium on the future of law and transportation. The symposium featured 17 professors other than myself presenting research on transportation from a variety of disciplines and perspectives. The presentations are quite short, about 12 minutes each in length, and are organized into panels. They were joined by keynotes from a former U.S. Secretary of Transportation and the Director of Transportation for America, a research and advocacy organization based in D.C. that focuses on transportation policy. With the assistance of Jeff Wood, the host of Talking Headways, a transportation podcast, we are pleased to bring you some edited versions of these talks uh, beginning on today's show. Jeff was kind enough to lightly edit these talks and distribute them on his show, and we're now fortunate to feature them on Densely Speaking. Nobody wants to just listen to a straight-up audio recording of an academic conference. Our hope is that this is not that. Instead, on today's show, you'll hear a brief intro from Jeff and then from me. And then we have a panel on transportation and land use planning that helps set the table for the transportation policy discussions that follow and that we'll be featuring in the future. Links to the program and videos from the event are in the show notes. So with apologies for the self-promotion, we hope you enjoy this installment of the Iowa Law Review Symposium on the Future of Law and Transportation. We will be bringing you new episodes in the traditional interview format in the new year. You're listening to the Talking Headways Podcast Network. This is Talking Headways, a weekly podcast about sustainable transportation and urban design. I'm Jeff Wood. This week, we're headed to the Iowa Law Review's Symposium, The Future of Law and Transportation. In this episode, we're sharing a panel on transportation and land use featuring Jonathan Levine, Audrey McFarlane, and Sarah Bronin. So recently, Iowa law professor Greg Schill and his team put together a symposium that brings together scholars and lawyers to think about transportation. I'm going to take some of these panels and cut them down in order to share them with you all. In this episode, Jonathan Levine of the Taubman College of Architecture and Urban Planning at the University of Michigan discusses his paper, Transportation Policy Entrenchment, Institutional Barriers to Accessibility-Based Planning. And Audrey McFarlane, Associate Dean of Faculty Research and Development at the University of Baltimore School of Law, discusses her paper, Black Mobility and the Refusal of Funds, Structural Racism and Mass Transportation Decision-Making, which she wrote with Dean Julius Isaacson, also of the University of Baltimore School of Law. And finally, Sarah Bronin, Thomas F. Gallivan, Chair in Real Property Law and Faculty Director, Center for Energy and Environmental Law, University of Connecticut School of Law, discusses the failed federalism of street and vehicle design standards. We hope you enjoy this episode, and we'll be back with a few more through the end of the year. Thanks to Greg Schill and the Iowa College of Law for allowing us to rebroadcast this audio. All right, Greg, take it away. It's often said that the modern civil rights movement began 65 years ago next month on a city bus in Montgomery, Alabama, when Rosa Parks refused an order from a bus driver to give up her seat for a white man. The Montgomery bus boycott that followed helped power a historic successful movement for civil rights and social change, a movement that continues to this day. But in the past 65 years, there's been a major change in how people get around. 60% of transit riders today are people of color. Not coincidentally, 
outside of a handful of cities in the United States, public transit has become a bare bones safety net service rather than a system like roads and highways that are taken seriously and receive extensive funding and bipartisan support, support that it needs to function as an effective network. Treatment of sidewalks and other active transportation infrastructure is even worse. As Dean Washburn mentioned, many of these decisions are made at the federal level. Others are made at the state and local level, but infused through all of them is law. This is the first scholarly conference that we're aware of, and we looked, that focuses on law and transportation as a subject of general public concern. By that, I mean today's speakers will be talking about hard social questions that relate to law and transportation. I'm not saying you won't hear some of the shiny new technology that has come across your social media come up at all today, but it's not going to be the focus. I think you'll find these hard social questions to be the focus today and ways to think about addressing them that hopefully starts a conversation that continues long past this conference. In addition to hopefully being a pathbreaking conference in itself, the other thing we wanted to do today is jumpstart a dialogue. Legal scholars comment on everything. You throw a dart at a newspaper and you will find a law professor offering an interpretation or an opinion on a major topic of public concern. By the way, whether they're an expert on it or not, really topics ranging from the internet to policing, to taxes, interest rates, foreign policy, housing, racial equity, gender equity, healthcare, and of course, anything having to do with constitutional law or litigation. One really glaring exception is transportation. And I find that a little puzzling for a number of reasons. Transportation is very prominent in society and public policy, as well as everyday life. Transportation is the connection between so many of the questions of our time. And scholars in other disciplines, and to be clear, some scholars in uh, legal academia, including many of those present today, but overall, we have been outstripped by our peers in other disciplines, where they've really been doing incredible work on the connection between transportation and climate change with transportation now contributing the biggest share of U.S. greenhouse gases, the connection between transportation and structural racism, between transportation and economic growth, public health, and of course, urban planning, and really disciplines across the board from engineering to political science, economics, geography, sociology, even anthropology and urban and transportation planning have been laser focused on this for decades. We have fallen behind as a community of legal scholars even as lawyers themselves remain integral to the planning, implementation, and politics of transportation. So we're excited today to be holding this, convening this event, but I think we will only succeed if we turn it into a bridge that helps bring legal scholarship towards the hard work that folks in other fields have done. And, and also, hopefully, there'll be some benefits for folks in other fields to see how legal scholars approach these questions. As I mentioned, next year, the Iowa Law Review will be publishing a special issue based on the articles presented today. This is on transportation planning and land use. It's our first of two such panels. We have Jonathan Levine, who is a professor of urban and regional planning at the University of Michigan Taubman College of Architecture and Urban Planning. He is followed by Audrey McFarlane, Associate Dean of Faculty Research and Development and Dean Julius Isaacson, Professor of Law at the University of Baltimore School of Law. 
and Sarah Bronin, who is the Thomas F. Gallivan Chair in Real Property Law and Faculty Director of the Center for Energy and Environmental Law at the University of Connecticut School of Law. And she's also been very closely involved in land reform efforts in Connecticut and New Haven. So without further ado, Jonathan Levine. I'd like to take you forward to an ordinary day uh, in the post-pandemic era. Ordinary day in the post-pandemic era, you've got uh, tasks you got to do today. You have to get to work and back, maybe at to school, maybe drop off kids. Maybe you want to go to a restaurant. So you have a list of things you're hoping to do today. Uh, only the only thing that's not ordinary about this day is you've got two different cities in which you can choose to fill your task list. City number one on our left-hand side is uh, has destinations that are close to their origins, origins and destinations close together, but it has slow traffic. City number two has origins and destinations that are spread farther apart, but the traffic is fast. And I'll add one more assumption. In city number one, because of the closeness of the origins, the destinations, you can fill your task list with a smaller investment of time and money than in destination number two. So now the philosophical question is, which city has the better transportation system? And most of you, I'm not going to conduct a poll here, but I suspect most of you would say, well, I'd rather spend less time and money in transportation if I can reach the same number of destinations. Therefore, uh, close destinations with slow traffic is a better transportation system, even uh, be, because I can end up uh, filling my list with less investment of time and money. If you think that, uh, you're thinking in accessibility terms about transportation as opposed to mobility terms about transportation. And I'm going to argue that embedded in our institutions and embedded in all of our ideas about institutional reforms are implicit problem definitions of regarding transportation. Historically, our problem definitions have been mobility-based, but the mobility-based problem definitions are inconsistent with the very purpose of transportation, which is to reach destinations, not to move per se. A quick definition, uh, the distinction between mobility and accessibility. Uh, I like to talk about them in terms of what would constitute an improvement in each. So an improvement in mobility is an increase in the territory that one can reach for a given investment of time and money. Whereas an increase in accessibility is an increase in the value of the destinations that one can reach for a given investment of time and money. If we start from the first fundamental purposes, the purpose of transportation in almost all cases is reaching destinations, then we would have to conclude that accessibility is the def problem definition uh, that's consistent with human behavior and human motivations. Problem definitions are carried in people's hearts and minds, and they're also carried in our legal institutions. So this talk argues for what I'm going to call the accessibility shift, which is the sh a shift in the methods and modes of transportation planning from a mobility basis to an accessibility basis. Now, often accessibility is equated with walking, cycling, transit, basically the alternatives to the automobile, and mobility is associated with the automobile. That is not the definition that I'm working from. 
I would argue that there is a mobility and an accessibility approach to planning for any transportation mode. For example, embodied in the standard engineering manuals uh, is, an, is a mobility approach to planning for pedestrianism. The quality of pedestrianism is gathered, is garnered by the ability of the pedestrian to move rather than the ability of the pedestrian to walk to any destination they might want to walk to. Uh, so let's not, let's not a priori decide that accessibility is uh, associated with any particular mode. Um, in addition to being uh, embodied in the hearts and minds of citizens, of professionals, of decision makers, mobility problem definitions are embodied in methods and metrics in transportation planning, transportation engineering. These methods and metrics are used to guide decision making such that it's not enough to change hearts and minds because the individual planner or the individual policymaker or the individual decision maker would be very hard pressed to alter their practices when institutions require them to act in a mobility centric fashion. Premier tool in, in mobility-based planning is level of service, which is roughly the degree of freedom of movement of any particular mode, but level of service historically has tend to, had tended to emphasize the movement of cars, auto mobility. And this idea of level of service comes up in a number of different ways in our institutions. Uh, for example, we have municipal uh, level of service standards in our planning uh, planning documents and municipal ordinances. I'll give you a little quote from, from my various institutions here. Under no circumstances shall the development cause a drop below level of service E, uh, XC, uh, volume to capacity ratio of uh, greater than 1.0 at any signalized intersections for any analysis scenario of the city, city of Lakewood. Okay, so here is a rigidly defined mobility-based problem definition uh, that any individual planner, any individual engineer would be hard pressed to change uh, autonomously. The change would of course would, would require legislative uh, change in this case. It's not just at the, at the municipal level, it's also at the state level. Uh, here's a, uh, an example of the state of Oregon, actually one of our more progressive states when it comes to transportation. Uh, I'll read the quote and then I'll, then I'll give you the context. The following volume, volume to capacity ratio based methodology is recommended as a first option when developing alternative mobility targets for state highways. So here's the state of Oregon telling uh, municipal entities in, this, in the state of Oregon, listen, you have, to, you have to adhere to our mobility targets. If you can't adhere to our mobility targets, we're going to give you a methodology that's going to allow you to generate new mobility targets. But the thinking remains stuck in mobility. So basically, the, the this state of Oregon is saying to municipal and county governments, okay, we understand you can't all have free-flowing traffic, so you might need to drop your mobility standards. But in fact, the urban areas, which are the ones that have the quote-unquote mobility problems, are the highest accessibility areas 
in the state. So instead of merely dropping your mobility standards, the, the thinking could change to uh, developing accessibility-based standards, in which case you're not merely uh, lowering your standards, but actually increasing people's opportunities to, to reach destinations. Uh, third, uh, third example comes in the form of concurrent concurrency, which is often a state level institution or adequate public facilities ordinances, which is often a local municipal institution. I'll read you an example from Charles County, Maryland. No preliminary plan for a subdivision or a major site plan required for a zoning permit shall be approved unless the planning commission first determines that the proposed subdivision or development will not adversely affect the adequacy of public facilities serving the area project or development. So far, so good, because by the way, this applies not just to transportation, but to things like sewage. You can't build a development if it's going to flood the area. Who's, who's going to object to that? Nobody's pro-flooding. But when it comes to transportation, let's see what it means. Service levels shall at all intersections in the immediate vicinity of the project as designated by the zoning officer be defined by the current edition of the Highway Capacity Manual published by the Transportation Research Board. In other words, define your mobility standard and don't develop unless you can maintain that mobility standard. That ultimately becomes a binding constraint on development, which forces development into a more remote, more low density, more auto-oriented auto areas. In other words, it becomes a constraint for allowing more people to live, work, and play in high accessibility areas, which is exactly the opposite of what one would do if one were pursuing a, an accessibility-based uh, problem definition and planning. Uh, a notable effort to, to reform has, has been evident in the state of California in the last few years. This is in the reform of the California Environmental Quality Act, which previously defined congestion as an environmental impact per se. That had a number of neg very negative consequences. Uh, a lot of very pro-environmental transportation reforms were attacked under the sequest California Environmental Quality Quality Act formula because they threatened to create automotive congestion. This reform says, actually, no, we're not going to treat congestion as, a, as an environmental problem per se. Uh, it's vehicle miles traveled that's going to be our metric of environmental harm. So I'll read the language. In developing criteria, the office shall recommend potential metrics to measure transportation impacts that may include but are not limited to vehicle miles traveled, vehicle miles traveled per capita, et cetera. I would call this a step forward, and it's, it's a necessary element in transportation policy reform, but I want to emphasize that the purpose of transportation, the purpose of transportation planning is not mobility, but it's also not reducing vehicle miles traveled. Just to give you one way of thinking about this, I want you to imagine uh, a planner choosing two different alignments for a transit investment. One goes through a rich area, one goes through a poor area. If that planner's criteria is reducing vehicle miles traveled, the answer is clear. Put your transit investment through the rich area. They're the ones who have a lot of cars. They're the ones who drive a lot. In other words, a problem definition that's exclusively around vehicle miles traveled tends to privilege travel that's high vehicle miles traveled to begin with. And assumes that if you're not driving a lot, which poor people don't because they can't afford to, uh, 
there is no transportation problem. So a vehicle miles travel definition is a step forward from a mobility definition, but it can never be adequate as a, as a de definition of the transportation problem. Finally, just, just to wrap up, uh, I, I like to talk about three roots of reform, the bottom up, the top down, and the outside in. The bottom up is that individual planner or decision maker uh, taking decisions to work in an accessibility-based fashion. But as we've seen, that person is going to be very, very limited because the institutions demand of him or her uh, um, mobility-based analyses. So for that reason, reform of institutions, reform of funding practices is necessary. The outside-in route of reform is when we look at other fields such as real estate or other fields such as uh, public health, these are fields that are very, very interested in the capacity of people to reach their destinations. In other words, these are fields that are already accessibility-based. We can learn from the outside and reform practices in that way. So ultimately, I'm saying that the institutions, institutional reform for accessibility is a necessary, surely not a sufficient, a sufficient condition, but there's an interaction between the problem definitions that people hold in their hearts and minds and the institutions that embody those problem definitions. Thanks. Next up is Audrey McFarland. Uh, good morning, everyone. I'm really delighted to be with you. Um, I am a land use person who is venturing into the transportation waters. Um, and in part, um, based on my uh, upbringing in New York City and uh, uh, being a big transportation, public transportation user. Um, but uh, my interest is also influenced by an experience that I had uh, in Baltimore City with respect to uh, an effort to bring public transportation to a jurisdiction that sure, uh, sorely needed it. And uh, we saw that the uh, program uh, or plans were summarily terminated. Uh, so there was a project for Baltimore called the Red Line, which was intended to be, um, as you can see it here uh, on my slide, you can see it, um, I guess, blurrily in the background, that was supposed to extend from the west side of Baltimore to the east side of Baltimore. Um, Baltimore City is a uh, uh, a very urbanized place, but it actually has relatively poor public transportation. Uh, there's uh, one train line off to the left, uh, off to the west, and another one that runs north-south to the suburbs. Um, and so the goal was to uh, have uh, improve the transportation from east to west across the city. Uh, and in particular to get from West Baltimore, which was a primarily black area over to the east side, which is gentrifying, um, but also was on the way to uh, Amazon work uh, warehouse. Um, and so two months after the Freddie Gray uprisings, the uh, uh, planning process for the red line had been in place for oh, roughly 13 years um, and involved lots of uh, public participation, the governor, the newly elected governor of Maryland terminated this uh, planned red line um, light rail uh, train project. And the reasoning was that it was a wasteful boondoggle 
Um, and later, uh, the governor expressed that they had spent $14 million extra because of the Freddie Gray uprising, and so that, therefore, Baltimore had essentially gotten its share. So um, the, the, the cancellation was abrupt and it was shocking. And it reflected um, lots of politics, but also it reflected um, something going on in a, uh, a state uh, that has had a long fraught history with um, uh, its black population and uh, in this context, black mobility. Um, and there's been a long sense that um, uh, or there's been a long sense that uh, part of the underinvestment in transportation in Baltimore was in indeed a reflection of um, that population. So having had this process uh, go on for as long as it had with as much investment as had taken place, they had expended about 288 million in planning um, and preparation for this program. And um, in view of the uh, amount of commitment that had been made to uh, trying to get this project done, uh, the question became, what to me, what could be done, what could be done to avoid this in the, in the future? Um, just a few words about uh, the need that we're talking about. Um, a television reporter did a um, test run. Let's see what a commute is like. And they tried to get from the west side of Baltimore to the Amazon warehouse, which was a journey of seven miles. And it took 95 minutes on three buses and they were unable to make it starting at 5.30 in the morning to get, uh, to get a worker there for the 7 a.m. shift. So the need was high. Uh, the investment uh, locally was high as well in terms of there was a very involved public participation process. Um, and um, I attended a public meeting where one of the attendees after the cancellation, one of the attendees said, but you know, we worked on this for 10 years. She said, I lost friends over this. I've lobbied people. We've really worked to try and make this um, come about. And now it has been summarily uh, terminated. So uh, the other um, dimension of this was that uh, when the program was terminated, the federal funds were refused and the state matching funds were, used, were reallocated from the Red Line project to highway projects around the states. And uh, the uh, NAACP uh, brought a Title VI uh, administrative complaint to argue that that reallocation of resources from the primarily black Baltimore city uh, to the primarily white areas was a violation of Title VI. Uh, one of the difficulties, however, is that in a way, Title VI comes about too late um, to try and put the pieces back together again of what was broken. And so uh, what I've been thinking about is, is there a way that we can uh, consider all of these factors, consider how structural racism plays into shaping the lack of the, the quality 
transportation that uh, meets people's needs, um, the influence of race in creating uh, disinvested communities, uh, the traditional opposition to public transit projects. Um, and you have examples all over the country, as I'm sure this uh, esteemed panel is aware of, of uh, announce a public transit project uh, and there's opposition, Houston, Atlanta, Los Angeles, um, you know, all over. And so it seems to me that public transit is uh, uh, certainly stigmatized for a variety of reasons, but to the extent that class and race play a significant role in the, um, I guess the kind of visioning about what it means or what it portends. So for example, we have an existing light rail line that goes from Baltimore down to the airport and passes through a uh, suburban county, uh, mostly white. And they had started to petition to close stops on the light rail line um, because of their perception that it was bringing crime to their areas. So there was, and there was, there were angry petitioning that they felt entitled that they had the right to close off these transportation stops. So to the extent that mass transit, um, I would say is racialized and stigmatized. I would almost call it black transit, uh, depending on the particular areas. Um, is there a way that the uh, process can be uh, structured to uh, address this inclination to um, basically torpedo uh, mass transit projects. Uh, I'm also inspired to, I guess, make this inquiry because this was not the only refusal of funds for mass transit projects. Around the same time, um, four other states, uh, New Jersey, Florida, um, uh, I have it in my notes, but there are a few other states that refused funds at the same time. So uh, in the way that we've set up transportation funding, um, it's certainly under the auspices of the spending clause uh, where uh, people, uh, where uh, money is made available for projects and there are certain conditions attached usually for how the funds are used, how the project is carried out. But um, I don't believe that there's any uh, control or any perceived ability to control the decision to refuse funds. Because usually um, it's unusual for uh, a project to, uh, I guess, be stopped in the middle of uh, uh, the process the way that it was here. So there seems to be a, a new trend or possibility that uh, these funds or these projects will uh, be uh, terminated or money that you were eligible for and had uh, um, won, depending on a change in administration, there's a political ideology that says that um, those funds are gonna be used for something wasteful and we're going to turn them down. So is there a way to control or limit the turning down of these funds? And um, it seems to me that in the case here where we had, uh, uh, so on the one hand, we have uh, federalism concerns. One argument might be that 
Um, the governor is uh, free to decide what makes sense politically within their jurisdiction or economically or is beneficial, and that they have the autonomy under 10th Amendment principles to make those decisions for their jurisdictions. But I would argue that when it comes to mass transit in particular, or public transportation in particular, that with that type of transportation being uh, racialized, that uh, there should be um, something approaching a presumption of disparate impact or a presumption of dis uh, discrimination uh, that's involved. And that uh, having accepted the funds, that uh, certain either contractual or equitable uh, principles uh, should um, uh, be applied. So if we apply, let's say, the uh, contractual uh, equitable principle of the covenant of good faith and fair dealing, if we apply a land use principle of uh, vested rights, um, or if we apply a land use approach that there are certain decisions that we will not defer to, but we will actually require you to produce evidence. So what I have in mind is that uh, we would just make the simple fix in terms of making these funds available, that one of the conditions of receiving the funds is that if you were ever going to turn them down, just tell us why, or uh, lay out your reasons. Now, it might sound like that's minimal, but very often when you have to spell it out, um, you would offer your reasons, but certainly uh, uh, we would want to see substantial evidence in support of those reasons. Another approach could be that if uh, there are elaborate public planning um, requirements to get to receive the funds, perhaps there should be public planning or hearing requirements to back out of the receipt of the funds. So there are many uh, ways to structure it, but I do think that there's a new phenomenon that we are not uh, really focused on, which is that it is politically perceived to be politically beneficial to defund these types of projects. And if it is politically beneficial and it is going to have a racially disparate impact and we can anticipate that in advance, um, we should uh, consider um, putting these kinds of conditions on the receipt of funds that if you want to refuse it, then offer uh, some kind of justification to support that refusal. And I will end there. Terrific. Well, thanks so thanks much, so Professor McFarland. We are going to move on now to Professor Sarah Bronin. Okay, great. Um, so thank you, Greg, and thanks, thanks to everybody for being here. I am just getting my 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 uh, slides up here for myself. I'm, I'm not or my my notes up. I'm not going to use slides today. I have a very low tech whiteboard, uh, in part because you know I know you're going to see a lot of images today and a lot of really great PowerPoint presentations. So I just thought um, I'd maybe just talk talk directly over the few minutes that I have. Um, so today we're probably all refreshing our Twitter feeds uh, and looking at the election results as they come in. And I will just start by saying that this is very relevant to the topic that I'm talking about today, because what I'm talking about today is uh, federalism. And the election right now is playing, is, is federalism on a 
uh, dramatic and uh, very real scale right now, because what we have in that instance is a situation in which states have to um, modify, uh, have to uh, actually in, uh, carry out federal election mandate. Um, and But the way they do it is kind of up to them. And so that is a federalist framework for election law. Uh, but today, instead of talking about elections, we're gonna talk about transportation law. Um, and I do see the federalism problem uh, cropping up across many of the presentations you'll see today. Professor McFarland uh, mentioned uh, it in uh, towards the end of her, her talk. Um, and of course it's, it's central in determining in that case, uh, how funding uh, decisions get made. Today, I'm mostly gonna talk about uh, design standards. Um, and so I encourage you to continue the conversation on Twitter. You might not be able to, there's a little bit of a glare, but I'll try to tilt it so that you can see. Um, just stepping back, uh, I was motivated to write a paper on this topic uh, for lots of different reasons, but uh, mostly because I keep knowing or being close to, um, uh, or you know, one degree of separation away from people who have been uh, killed uh, as pedestrians on roads. Um, and so the question for me is what is law's role in that? You may have seen even last month, uh, a Yale law student uh, and a crossing guard uh, were killed in the same week in New Haven. Um, and uh, you know, just getting frustrated about the fact that uh, we actually know how to prevent a lot of this and we're not doing it. So as an architect, I wanted to focus in today on design issues. So uh, there's lots of different issues we can uh, it, it blame for the rising uh, rates of pedestrian death. And I know um, Vanessa later is gonna talk uh, more specifically about pedestrianization and those issues. Um, but what I'm gonna focus on are street design standards and car design standards. So what I mean by street design, so uh, street design really refers to uh, what exactly what it means, how a street is laid out, how many lanes there are, how wide the lanes are, wider lanes lead to faster driving, uh, whether there are sidewalks or parked cars or trees, all of which lead to uh, slowing of uh, vehicular traffic. Um, and what I mean by car design standards is how we allow for cars to be built. So do we allow them to be uh, do, do, do we allow them to be oversized? And, and we've all seen uh, uh, larger and larger cars, heavier cars, uh, stiffer cars, cars that protect the occupants um, and taller cars. Again, all of this protects the occupants of the cars, but the consequences, the externalities of that design are, are brought around, uh, on the rest of us. Um, other consequences other than direct potential danger of, of car design are also indirect effects including greenhouse gas emissions. So the transportation sector, as you'll hear probably again and again today, uh, is the largest emitter of greenhouse gases, according to the EPA. So the truth is, is that we know what the right standards are, both for vehicle design and for street design. And the problem is, is we're not using them. We know what protects human life. We know what contributes to climate change. Uh, and we just are not incorporating those standards into our laws. And so for me, the question as I was delving into this topic was why? And I think the why is, uh, is really federalism. So we start with the constitution and uh, Professor McFarland uh, mentioned uh, part of this, but part of it is the, uh, the 10th amendment. So the constitution of course reserves powers to Congress uh, and the 10th amendment reserves certain powers to the state. Now that sounds very simple 
but of course it's it's not. There's a lot of different ways to think about uh, the relationship between federal, state, and local governments. And so we'll just you know remind folks, federalism is about uh, the relationship between federal, state, and local governments. And there are lots of different ways to think about this. So there are some scholars who think that we should have clear boundaries uh, for state and local control and that state's role in the federalist system is really to assert their autonomy. So I'm just gonna throw up a few words while I'm, while I'm writing, uh, while I'm talking. So autonomy, this is what you might consider the autonomy model of federalism. Then there are those who believe that state and federal governments should work together to achieve common goals. And, and we sort of call this the cooperative federalism or the cooperation model. I'll just throw that word up here too. Um, and then finally, uh, there are those who uh, believe that states should use the powers that Congress granted them to tweak, uh, dissent, uh, or challenge federal law. And so we call this, you know, maybe uh, a, ten, a, 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 a strand of federalism that thinks about the states and local governments as in constant tension. But whatever the model, whether it's the autonomy model, the cooperation model, or the uh, tension model, I guess you could call it, the, the thing that all scholars talk about uh, as the primary goal of federalism is really the same, and that is balance. And so when you look at the, the question of balance, it's all about weighing different priorities uh, and uh, looking at uh, how things kind of shake out over the course of time. But what you're really evaluating, and scholars have uh, in some instances tried to evaluate federalist schemes uh, against various uh, values, and across those three values, uh, across those values, I mean, I think they boil down really to three. And so the three values that I wanna focus on today with uh, that I think are relevant across multiple models of thinking about federalism are representation. So the ability of people to be heard by their government. Uh, then the next one I wanna talk about is uh, liberty which is the ability of people to be protected, whether it's constitutional rights or, uh, or natural rights, maybe even from government. And uh, there's, a, there's a strand of, of scholars that have focused on this question. Um, and then of course, practicalities of scale. It's a little bit of a longer one. All right, so practicalities of scale. And I'm, I'm looking at uh, my board here and I'm realizing that what you can see is backwards. Well, this is a, an exercise in mental gymnastics then. Uh, so enjoy that. And I'll actually, I had a, a, a chat queued up here. All right, so uh, I'll have to learn how to write backwards next time. This is my first time experimenting with a whiteboard. All right, so looking at this representation, liberty, practicalities of scale, um, we uh, really wanna apply this right now to election law, uh, but we're gonna apply this to transportation design standards. Um, oh, it is front words for you. All right, great, excellent, excellent. All right, thank you for the comments in the chat. All right, so, but first we have to know how these standards work. So let me just go through briefly and kind of uh, talk about how each of these standards work again at a very broad scale because we don't have a ton of time. Um, there are 4 million roads, uh, 4 million miles of roads in the United States. Um, street design standards depend on the type of road. So I, I leave out in the paper that I'm writing both interstate highways and unpaved rural roads, which unbelievably account for 
um, 31% of all roads in this country for obvious reasons. So there's no amount of design standards that can help improve outcomes on highways or unpaved rural roads. So it's really the, the rest of the roads, the roads in between state roads, local roads, um, and federal roads that are not interstate highways that I'm thinking about. Um, so if you look at the, uh, I'll put a new SSR link uh, in the, in the, in the, in the uh, chat in a second, just saw that chat. All right, so if you look at the, um, the I'll just put it here, there's a standard of uh, fed, for federal design, a, a national standard that has been established and it's called AASHTO. Uh, there's a green, it's called the Green Book. And it is essentially set out by a bunch of engineers that have taken it upon themselves. Uh, originally a, tra a, trans a federal highway lobby, they've taken it upon themselves to design standards for all, all streets. Um, it is very focused on the car and uh, enabling fast movement of the car. So in addition to ASHTO, which is a national standard, um, there are, there's emerging a trend to try to adopt uh, at the local level, uh, a, another standard called the NACTO standard. We don't have a lot of time to get into that, but it's more of a standard that focuses on pedestrians and all users. Um, but in general, uh, the states, and local governments adopt this uh, national standard called AASHTO. Uh, we also have uh, in vehicle standards, federal standardization, mostly in the production of vehicles, their design. Um, however, we have seen uh, states try to, and even local governments actually with Bloomberg and the Prius taxi uh, 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 attempt to try to uh, regulate uh, the, the kinds of taxis in New York City, we do see state and local governments trying to do more than uh, the federal government has in terms of car design, particularly when it comes to emission standards. Recently, uh, over the last few years, uh, Bloomberg's attempt to get Prius taxis in New York City was shut down. California's emission waiver was just denied by uh, the Trump administration. And so you see that even though state and local governments are trying to innovate through this federalist system, uh, they keep getting batted down. Okay, so what does that mean for the, the topic of federalism that, that uh, you know, I wanted to talk about today? Let's go back to these three things, representation, uh, liberty and practicalities of scale. And the basic argument in my paper is that uh, we're not well represented as individuals in the uh, development of design standards. This AASHTO standard that I mentioned, I'm just gonna put an X through it because it's a terrible uh, set of standards. Um, but the AASHTO standard is developed in secret. We can't even get copies of the standard uh, without paying $1,400. There's actually a, a, a series of lawsuits against building codes, including a case on upcodes in the Southern District of New York, uh, which also a privatized uh, legal standard that people can't even see um, and you know, hoping that that uh, re resolves in favor of the public interest in seeing building codes uh, uh, will also perhaps play into the public's interest in seeing design standards. Um, so representation, uh, and I know I just have a minute left, so I'm gonna just go through these really quickly. Uh, in the area of liberty, so Akhil Amar is perhaps a leading uh, scholar who talks about liberty as uh, the primary goal of federalism. We haven't really talked about or developed legal theories uh, that kind of relate to this idea that we have an individual right in being free from uh, uh, certain death on roads as pedestrians, uh, that we have uh, legal rights to uh, be free of uh, emissions, uh, dangerous greenhouse gas emissions. And so we should try to develop theories in this area. If we want to fix something, we should try to develop theories in this area that relate to individual liberty and uh, use those to the court system. 
And then finally, the practicalities of scale uh, question. This might be the area where the vehicle and design standards uh, are best suited uh, uh, or best served by the federalist, uh, federalist system. Uh, but even here, uh, we can see that there are impacts across uh, local government jurisdictions, across state jurisdictions in the way that we design our roads in particular, um, and it's something to take a look at. So what is our solution? Uh, greater transparency, uh, rational decision-making, uh, development of legal theories about uh, individual rights, possibly also looking at government immunity and preemption analysis. So I'll just conclude by saying that there are lots of things that affect what I'm concerned about, uh, what I see, and again, too many people uh, dying on our roads, uh, traffic uh, laws, high speed limits, low gas prices, driver distraction, but these would not be as big of an issue as they are uh, if people actually had safe roads to drive on and cars uh, whose drivers uh, actually internalize the externalities that they create. All right, so with that, I'd love to connect on Twitter and I'm looking forward to hearing your questions. Thanks so much, Sarah. Thank you all for listening to the first episode from the Iowa Law Review Symposium on the future of law and transportation. Stay tuned for future episodes. As always, we'd love to hear from you. We are at Densely Speaking on Twitter, as well as our personal handles at Jeff R. Lynn and at Greg underscore Shill. Please take a moment to rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts if you haven't done so already. It helps folks find the show. Thank you to Skylar Pals, our producer, and thank you once again to Jeff Wood, the host of the Talking Headways podcast, for doing the bulk of the audio for today's show.